From the Maximum Fun Network, this is The Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. Henry Nichols wakes up early one Saturday and rides out to Stubb Newell's farm. Stubb is his brother-in-law, and sometimes he throws him some cash to do some odd jobs, like paint a fence or whatever. This time it's to dig a well. Henry brings his buddy Gideon with him. Gideon had lost his arm a few years back in the Civil War, but he says he'd be willing to give Henry a hand so to speak. And Stubb takes them out to the field behind his barn, points to some spot in the ground. It seems totally arbitrary. And Henry and Gideon start digging. And the whole thing is taking forever. The ground is really hard, and they're digging for hours. Then Henry's shovel hits something. Gideon clambers down into the hole. He starts clearing away the dirt with his one hand. And he finds a foot. A giant foot. George Hull was getting nowhere. He had spent years farming tobacco in upstate New York, trying to find riches in the soil. He had done pretty well during the war. People wanted their cigars, and they couldn't get them from the Carolinas anymore. Then the South surrendered, and everything went south, up north. His business fell apart. So George Hull decided to look for actual riches in the dirt. He headed to the gold fields of California. And on his way west... Hull stops in Ackley, Iowa. And he's at a bar, and he gets into an argument with a Methodist preacher. George Hull is an atheist, and a loud one. And the preacher is a drinker, and a loud one. And the two go at it about the Bible all night long. The preacher is all literal word of God on one side, and Hull's all book of fairy stories on the other. In the crux of their particular version of this predictable argument hinges upon a line in Genesis that says, There were giants upon the earth in those days. And that is just too much for George Hull. He can't stand how dumb people are. They'll just believe anything. Henry and Gideon believed they had found a dead Indian. That's what they said when Stubb Newell came back to check on how well the well was doing. I declare, one of them said, some old Indian has been buried here. And it was some old Indian. The body that lay there in the dirt was 10 feet tall. It was hard as a rock, heavy as hell a nude male figure lying prone, twisted slightly at the hips, sort of smiling. Henry and Gideon started freaking out. For years, they had heard the people of the Onondaga tribe tell stories of stone giants that lived in the forest. Maybe this was one of them, and maybe it would wake up. But Stubb Newell had a different theory, one that had been handed to him by George Hull. One night, two years earlier, Hull had ridden into Cardiff, New York, looking for someone who had a farm, a shovel, and a good poker face. Because he had a giant he was looking to unload. He found his man in Stubb Newell. Hull had told him about the preacher in Iowa, and how annoyed he had made him. And how he wanted to stick it to that guy. And stick it to everyone, really. Who believed in nonsense and hokum. So he came up with a plan for a grand hoax. He would make a petrified man. It can take millions of years to petrify something. It took George Hull, too. He spent a few months getting money together by selling off shares of the inevitable windfall that a petrified man would bring. It took a while longer to find a giant block of marble and a sculpture to carve it into a giant, and then time to make this freshly carved statue look like ancient flesh. He's sanding it down and chipping out chunks of ankle and shoulder and thigh, and dipping it in acid until it looked the way he imagined a giant man would have if he had fallen into a bog back in the time before Abraham, and then had become petrified. 
and then he dug a hole in the dead of night. A year later, Stub Newell was standing by a hole in the ground with a lump in his throat. A day after orchestrating the incredible discovery of a biblical giant in his backyard, he was already making money off of it. He'd put a rope around the pit and charged his neighbors a dollar for a closer look. But the big payoff, the riches he'd been fantasizing about since George Hall knocked on his door the spring before, depended on the four men in the hole. People needed to believe it. It was one thing for some farmers and field hands to aw shuck some word of mouth around his little hamlet. His neighbors would believe anything. For the giant to really draw a crowd, he needed people with some actual authority to buy in. He needed scientists. And here were four doctors from neighboring towns, trained physicians, crawling through the dirt, poking and measuring, and conferring in authoritative tones. And when the four men climbed up from the hole, muddy and wide-eyed, and declared that the giant was the genuine article, Stub Newell breathed easier, and he put up a tent. The world descended upon Cardiff, New York. Headlines called the statue the Cardiff Giant and called it the biggest scientific discovery of the century. Tourists rode in on horseback and omnibus. Within weeks, whole hotels were built to house the gawking throng. Stub Newell was making money giant hand over giant fist and squirreling it away for George Hall and his secret cabal of investors. And then they took the giant on the road. And at every stop, the crowds grew. But so did the risk. Each town had its own experts, its professors, its lecturers of note, who'd all take a crack at the giant. But most bought it, the giant, the genesis, the whole thing. Some didn't, and they said it was a statue, but an ancient statue from some lost civilization, which would have been a giant discovery, if not a petrified one. But every now and then, someone would call it what it was, just a giant scam. But George Hull and his investors managed to stay a step ahead, moving on to another city before people caught on and demanded answers, and they would have to own up to reality. There was one person who didn't care at all whether it was real. P.T. Barnum knew a good show when he saw one, and he made them an offer. He would pay them $60,000 to rent the giant for three months. And this was a good deal. That's about a million of today's dollars. And George Hall had only spent the equivalent of 30 grand to make his petrified marvel. Their tour was still doing well, but not that well. They'd never make that kind of money in three months. They didn't have Barnum's promotional genius. And most importantly, they didn't have his mammoth museum in downtown Manhattan. But they didn't take the offer. Because Manhattan was the problem. They had managed to make a small fortune off an outrageous fake. But people were starting to poke holes in the story letting little drops of doubt seep in. Three months in the spotlight, in the biggest city in the world, the whole thing was bound to get washed away. So they said no. And Barnum said fine. And then he made his own giant. No one could figure out exactly how he did it. Maybe someone made a plaster cast in the dead of night. Maybe someone had been surreptitiously making elaborate sketches at every stop on the tour. But in the fall of 1869, an exact replica of the Cardiff Giant went on display in Barnum's museum. And of course, he claimed it was the real thing. The owners of the real fake giant were outraged. They threatened to sue. 
And Barnum said, bring it on. You bring your giant into court, and I'll bring mine, and we'll ask a judge to decide which one is really a petrified person. George Hall knew he was beat. He signed a book deal, and then he admitted the whole thing. And people still came to see the giant for a while. It may not have been a real magical, mythical creature, but it was still pretty cool. It wasn't a real giant, but it was a giant celebrity. And George Hall took his money, and he sold some books. And reading the book, George Hall seems like kind of a dick. And this from a person who loves a good hoax. I can totally get behind a charismatic con man. But George Hall began this whole thing with the premise that people are idiots. And looking back on it, he seems pretty smug. Like he was sure that he pulled the rug out from under the faithful fools who bought into this biblical stuff and this magic and mystical nonsense. But the truth is, he didn't have a rug. He had a tablecloth. You yank it out and the silverware is still in place. You haven't spilled a drop. If belief could survive Copernicus and Galileo, it could survive the Cardiff Giant. And you didn't have to be a fool to be fooled in 1869. You were a farmer. You were a dock worker or a candlestick maker or a scrivener. Where had you ever been? What had you ever seen? How good were your textbooks? How learned were your learned men? And this fake giant had real power. One day you're tilling your field or you're working your terrible job, living your hard life. Someone over yonder digs up a giant in their backyard. It had enough power to change people's days, to draw a crowd, and to make some people rich. It gave a one-handed farmhand a story to dine out on for the rest of his life back in the 1870s. It gave him a Wikipedia entry today. It sounds enough like magic to me. I pay a dollar to see that.